Thank you, Carol. The passage is, uh, is somewhat familiar, but yet it catches us off guard at times because when we hear Moses talking, who do we hear? We hear ourselves in his language, the questions he asks. It's all part of the rhythm of this fantastic story that we know so well from the book of Exodus. We're continuing today in a series of messages called Value the Difference, where we're exploring the different values we hold as Christian people and how we hold them in a distinct, peculiar, at times even odd sort of way, that as we live our lives with these values, the people around us, the people we work with, the people we live near, the people that we engage regularly can tell that something's different about us, that we're followers of a Jesus that calls us to live in this very peculiar way of life. And so today I want to talk about the value of grace, because grace is really all over this story with Moses. Now, before we really get into some of the, the ins and outs of this text and exactly what's going on in Moses' life, now he's trying to give expression to some of his doubts and his hesitations. Let's talk first about calling, because that's what's really happening here at this burning bush, as we call it, this bush that's not consumed, is that Moses is being called to do a task, and the task is to return to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt to a land that God would show them. So Moses has a mission. He has a calling. The difficulty Moses has is whether he wants to accept this calling or not. And so let's talk first about calling and how the call of God is, in fact, a grace. Now, calling works in two ways that I find in, in my life, and I know other people find this to be true as well. There's an inner call and an external call, an inward one and an outside one, if you will. So the inner call is the kind of call we go through in our lives where we sit for a moment and try to pray and discern what God wants us to do in maybe a given situation, or it could be much larger in scope, like what should we do with our life? What kind of vocation should we have? What should we be doing in this season of our life right now? Now, typically, exploring the inner call means that we have to take time for discernment and prayer and silence and reflection to listen to what God might be saying to us. In this case, we don't read a whole lot about Moses's inner call, Moses has been in Egypt growing up as a man of privilege until he murdered an Egyptian for beating one of the, the Hebrew slaves that was in Egypt, and he fled into the wilderness. You remember last week when we were talking about lament, that sometimes our reaction is to fight or flight. And in this case, Moses did both. Fight, then flight. Not realizing that perhaps there was another choice that comes about when he finally meets God at this burning bush. That's the inner call, that self-awareness, that moment where we say, I believe God is inviting me to do this, say this, be this, go here, do that. But there's also an external call, and that call is the kind of call that happens from people around us in our lives, our friends, the people that are closest to us. They might be able to give us some information, some advice even, or moments of insight that can help us understand what God might want us to do. 
Now, in Moses' life, at this point, at least at the burning bush, that individual was his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro, time and again, tried to pull Moses aside and say, Moses, I don't think you're in the right place. I think you maybe need to think about this. He, he had a person around him that was willing to speak truth to him. Now, in our own church right now, for example, we're having a, a class with not quite 30 people in it where folks are learning how to be in a small group together. And the reason those small groups are important is not because we want to be a church that has a program with small groups. It's important because we want to, to affirm the fact that people need to be in relationships with each other and be in relationships where they can talk about these types of things. Not just these things, but these types of things. So as we're sitting together in small group, we can hear that external call that comes from other people. So there's an inward call and there's an external call. Then both of them have to work. But if they get out of balance, then we have difficulties. Like, for example, if we have too much inward call, the belief that God has anointed us to do something great and awesome, and then the external call around us says, mm, I don't think that's a good idea. All right? That's what we call the giant in chains syndrome. It's the one where you see it again on a lot of these reality TV shows where there's some kind of singing or dance competition with people who cannot sing and cannot dance. They have a great internal call. I'm meant to be a great singer, but externally people may not affirm the same thing. The opposite problem when things are out of balance is that when those around us give us a message and speak to us a truth about what we might be doing with our lives for God, and we don't believe them. We refuse to accept what they have to say. Maybe out of our own sense of inadequacy, our own sense of shame, whatever it might be, we just don't feel like we can do that. That's Moses' problem here. It's called the imposter syndrome. It's the belief that when we step into a task or a work or an activity, that we're really not supposed to be there. And so let's explore what happens to Moses in this conversation at the, the burning bush, this holy ground in which he finds himself, as he's trying to wrestle with how God's grace is at work in his life. The grace in this case is a call, and the call of God is a grace given to us so that we might live a life for God's significance. Our calling is to live a life for God's significance. And Moses is having a hard time wrestling with this reality. You see, grace covers the gap between the possible and the impossible. And so as you think about your life for a moment, between the possible and impossible, I just want you to wrestle with two quick questions about that this week. Be thinking about these questions. Here they are. Where are you listening to the voice of the Lord in your own heart? Where is there time for you to hear what God is saying to you? That's that internal part. And then another question would be, where are you in a community where others can speak truth to you? Where are you in a community where others can speak truth to you? As we think about these two questions, what we're really struggling with is what's the difference between the possible and impossible. For Moses, what's possible is him tending sheep in Midian. The impossible God has called him to is to tend the sheep. 
that are the lost house of Israel in bondage in Egypt and to lead them to freedom. The question isn't whether Moses should be a shepherd or not. The question is about to whom he will be a shepherd. Actual sheep or the people that God wants to save. So grace covers the gap between the possible and the impossible. And so this little conversation ensues where Moses says to God, what if they don't believe me? And it's a nice ambiguity in the text because when he says they, it's not clear whether he's referring to whether or not the Egyptians won't believe him, Pharaoh, or whether the Israelites themselves won't believe him. So can you imagine what it's like to hold that, that kind of ambiguity? So you want me to go and free the children of Israel. Pharaoh may not believe me. The people I'm supposed to liberate may not believe me. How am I to prove that? So he's wrestling with the possible to the impossible. So God then says, well, what's in your hand? And he says, a staff. It's this big stick he carries that assists him while he's hiking through maybe difficult terrain. But he also uses it to kind of nudge and move the sheep around as they're making their way along the path. Now, I want to read another passage of scripture to you. It's coming up on the screen. It's Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. We hear this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Sounds like a word for Moses, doesn't it? According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. This great promise from Ephesians is a, a statement of clarity about which Moses is wrestling. Is God able to do far more abundantly beyond all that he can ask or think according to the power at work within him? That's what he's wrestling with. So God says, what's in your hand? And he says, ah, I got a staff in my hand. God says, throw it on the ground. So he throws it on the ground, and what happens to the staff? What's it turn into, everyone? Turns into a snake. And then God asks them to do something totally nuts. Pick up the snake by its tail. I'm no professional snake handler, friends. And to be honest, we're not that kind of church, are we? <laughs> but what I can say is I know not to pick a snake up by its tail. You want to pick it up as close to the head as possible, and therein lies the problem, right? As soon as Moses does grab the snake by the tail, it turns back into a staff, doesn't it? It goes right back into the form it was. And so you might remember this cool special effect in the movie, The Ten Commandments, that Cecil B. DeMille directed, with this really weird-looking animation. When the stick hits the ground, it turns into this cartoony snake, and then Moses picks it back again, or Charlton Heston picks it back up again, we should say. Moses believes that he does not have what he needs. And God's response to that is, what's in your hand? It's the, the issue that we struggle with here is very much the same as Moses. We live in a culture that is telling us 24-7 that there's something we don't have yet, that there's something we need. If you just had one of these, you could do it. If you just went to this certain place, you could do it. It's always trying to convince us that we're in need. And what I want us to hear is that message that comes to us constantly 
in the consumeristic world in which we live is contrary to the very message of the gospel in which we hear Jesus telling the disciples, you can do all things. Do you see how those messages collide with each other? What's in your hand? God asks Moses. Moses already has that which he needs. He doesn't need something else. He already has it. So our text goes on. And then God says, well, if they don't believe you then, then do this. Stick your hand inside your tunic or your garment. It literally says put your hand in the fold of your garment, which meant to put his hand right up next to his chest right here. And then to pull it out. And when he does, his hand is covered in what was commonly called leprosy. Is this variant of some kind of skin disease turned the, turned the skin kind of white and flaky. We don't need to get into what it is, but it, it's not good. And in the ancient world, they believed that that disease was spread by contact. So if you touch something or someone else, they would catch it as well. So then when God says, take your nasty white flaky hand and stick it back into your garment, you understand what God's asked them to do, right? To take infected skin and touch healthy skin with it. So God's basically telling Moses, I want you to take that, that gnarly hand you have, and I want you to rub it all over your body. And sure enough, he pulls the hand back out, and what happens? It's clean. His skin is normal. So it's not only a question of what you have, it's also a question of who you are. That God can use who you are exactly as you are in the moment in which you are. Listen again to this passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit, varieties of ministries in the same Lord, varieties of effects but the same God who works all things and all persons. But, listen, verse 7. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one. Every single one of us has received the gift of the Spirit for the common good. So what Moses is struggling with is, well, will they believe me? And God says, well, what do you have in your hand? A staff. What about your hand? Stick it in your garment. Pull it out. You have yourself. Your own body is able to be used by God for the purpose God has called Moses to use it for. And then the last hat trick. God says, if they don't believe you then, go get some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, then it will turn to blood. Now, of the three little tricks that God gives Moses here, the, the whole staff turns into a serpent. Moses uses that one with the Pharaoh. The second trick, which is the leprous hand, Moses never uses that trick. This is the only time it ever happens. But the third trick, God asks him to simply believe that it will work. Because Moses is in the middle of the desert in Midian. He doesn't have access to water from the Nile, does he? God says, well, take some water and it'll turn to blood. God's asking him to believe that when he does it, it'll happen. So it's a future sign. And it's the very first sign Moses does. Eventually, he returns to Egypt, he sticks his staff in the Nile, and the whole thing turns to blood. The Egyptians regarded the Nile as a god. They regarded the Nile as a god. The sun god, the moon god, and the god of the Nile. Because if you lived in the middle of the desert and you were next to a river, it's life-giving. They regarded it as divine. So Moses being able to stick a piece of wood in it 
and turn it to blood is a sign of God's supremacy. The, the symbol of the staff throughout Jewish scripture has always been a symbol of God's power, of God's might. You know it well from Psalm 23, do you not? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, these are signs of God's power and presence at work in our lives. So when we think about grace bridging the gap between the possible and the impossible, God is saying to Moses, look, Moses, you've got a stick in your hand, you have yourself, and trust me, you have my power. That would be good enough on any given day. Not quite. Not quite. Some questions to wonder about this week. Some questions to wonder about. How might you add a daily prayer of surrender to your life? And what I mean by this is that Moses is challenged to use what he has, right? His staff, his hand, whatever he's got. So how could you add that into your prayer life every day? That prayer of surrender. Say, God, I don't need anything else. I already have what I need, but I surrender what I have to you, to be used by you. How could you add that to your prayer during this week? And then, where is grace revealed in you? In other words, where do you see God doing good things in your life? Think for a minute about maybe conversations or activities or things you do and say, how is it that grace is revealed in my life? Where is it evident? And does it point to God or does it point somewhere else? Does it point to God or does it point somewhere else? Now, you ready to get to the heart of it? It's at the very end of the text that grace covers our own limitations and liabilities. After God tells Moses, Moses, you have a cool magic stick. And Moses, you you have your own hand. You have all of these capacities that point to my power. Let's do this. Now Moses gets to the bottom line, doesn't he? What's he say? You know, God, I've never been a man of eloquent words. It says literally in Hebrew, I have a thick tongue and thick lips, is what it says. I'm unable to speak. Now, it's strange, throughout the entire book of Exodus, up to this point, we've never read anything about Moses not being able to speak well. We haven't heard about this. This is the very first time this issue comes up at the burning bush where God, he tells God, ah, you know, I'm not the best spokesperson to do this kind of work. At the end of this conversation with God, Moses, Moses has to face his own demons. Because really what's happening here isn't, does God have a name? I am that I am. It isn't whether Moses needs a parlor trick. It's whether Moses himself believes that he's the person that needs to do this and can do this. You see, all of this conversation with God at the burning bush begins to penetrate deeper and deeper into him. Until after God takes everything off the table, all of the excuses, all of the avoidance, all of the questions, after all that's pushed away, there's only one thing left, and it's Moses' imposter syndrome that he cannot get around. I can't be this person. And so he tells God, I'm not the right spokesperson, I can't do it. 
being in relationship with God is dangerous. Because when we are, we are forced to deal with our deepest pain. We must reckon with the lament of our heart. We have to come to grips with the things in us that keep us from being the people God has called us to be. And we live in a world of superficiality, of skimming the surface. And a life with God beckons us deeper into this place. Moses now has to deal with the thing he has not wanted to deal with. And it's his own feeling of inadequacy. And so, he has the flight temptation. It's exactly what happened. Remember, after he killed the Egyptian in Egypt, what did Moses do? What's he demonstrated in his behavior before? When, when moments turn to a crisis, what's he do? He runs. He's run out in the middle of the wilderness. He's tending sheep. He's run as far away from the purpose God has, from his life, has for his life as he possibly can as he tries to hide from what God has called him to do. He gets to the end of this text, and it's a rich passage. It's the most backhanded way of telling God no. He says, literally, God, I'm sure that you know someone who can do this. Now, there's only two people in the Bible that were called to be prophets that refused to accept the call. The first one is Moses. Do you know who the second one is? Jonah. We're going to talk about Jonah next week. They're the only two. Moses is so filled with his own inadequacies, his own fears, his own demons, that he cannot come to the conclusion that he could actually do the very thing God is calling him to do. And so God's response to Moses is to say, the thing you lack, I have. You need words, I got more words than you could ever imagine. I made your mouth. I'm the one who caused you to speak. I'm the one who did all those things. And then Moses responds with, God, I'm sure you know someone who can do this. Now, we didn't read the very next verse in the story in Exodus chapter 3. But the very next verse, if you continue reading, it says that God was enraged with him. Do you understand why it's written that way in Hebrew in such powerful words? He's enraged with him. Because God is trying to tell Moses, Moses, I don't need you to be great. I need you to let me be great. And Moses keeps thinking he has to be great. That's the thing going around in his mind again and again and again. That he has to be awesome. That he's got to be powerful. That he has to be great. He has to be all these things. And God is infuriated with him. Moses, do you not understand? This is not about you. You see, the imposter syndrome, where we don't believe God could do something with us, flows completely out of the belief that we have to be awesome. This is an important word for us to hear, I think, in many ways as a church, and I've, I've kind of left a lot of the loose ends of this sermon sitting around because in the hopes that, that God is speaking to each of you to tie some of these loose ends together. 
which is not like me. We have become a church filled with older people. Do we believe that God cannot do anything great through us? Do we believe that no matter where we are in our life, that our time has come and gone? This is an important word for us to hear. Because we are not called to be people who are these wide-eyed optimists who go into the world thinking everything's going to be unicorns and rainbows. That is not what it means to be a graceful person. To be a graceful person believes that all we must do is surrender that which we have, that which we are, to God's greatness, and God will do something great even through us. And so I suggest that maybe we change our orientation. That God is actually not calling us to do much. God will do all the heavy lifting. All God needs is a bunch of people who will say, Lord, we're yours. And we're deeply in need of your grace. Because we're kind of lacking. That's it. And one of the ways we do that is when we come forward every week for communion. When we come for communion every week, it's not so much a, a ritual that we go through as much as it is a statement on our part that every person who comes forward, what they're saying is, God, I need your grace. I am desperate for it. That without it, I'm lost. But with it, you can do all things through me and through us. Uh, the Greek word in the New Testament, which our reading hasn't been from, uh, for grace is the word charis. It's the same word in the New Testament for gift. Grace and gift are the same word, charis. That's why we call this table sometimes the Eucharist. E-U on the front, that means good. Charis or charis, that means gift. Eucharist literally means good gift. So as we come for communion today, I, yeah, please don't go through the motions. Come today, every single one of us, as people in desperate need for the grace that God alone supplies. Because God doesn't need any of us to be great. God just needs us to be available. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this meal, that in it you bring to us life and hope, that in a cynical age in which people believe nothing can change, that to believe that there are good outcomes is a waste of time. Not so with us, God. We give you thanks for Jesus, who demonstrated in his life, death, and resurrection the very promise we're called to live into each and every day. That no matter how old we are as we gather around this table, whether we're 9 or 90, your promises of abundant and spirit-filled life are true. 
We remember, God, when Jesus gathered around this table with his disciples, how he took bread. After he returned thanks to you, he broke the bread and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and after he returned thanks to you, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood so that we might be for the world the very body of Christ redeemed by that blood. God, we come to this table confessing that we are not even worthy to gather around it, but yet your grace invites us. And so we desperately hunger and thirst for that which you alone can provide. Bless us this day as we come, desperately seeking your love. For only grace makes beauty out of ugly things. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus.